See the burly longshoreman showing off his biceps, heaving and a hauling mighty freighters in and out. All of the town folk think he's quite a guy, except he don't lift a finger to help around the house. Scuttlebutt! Scuttlebutt, written by Donnie McVean. Read by Roger Burley. Hosted by Leslie McVean. A production of Bertha May Productions. Sponsored by Portland Media Center. Music, Scuttlebutt by Chuck Romanoff. Scuttlebutt is the story of two young men from a tiny community in Casco Bay, Maine. One who went to war during World War II and one who stayed home and how their dreams of life in the community have changed. When we last left the community of Scuttle, Manly and Spermer were reminiscing about an old punt and some of the pranks that involved that punt. And now, part three of Scuttlebutt. With a lot of help from Woodrow and Rose, Gainley made short work of the chimney repairs. He tried to pay his crew, but they both refused the money, claiming that they had had a good time. It didn't surprise Gainley to have Woodrow say, The only thing that bothered me was that every rock I picked up would have made the finest kind of lobster trap ballast. The pair that truly had set up rode away on the two-seater bicycle, and Gainley joined his wife in the kitchen. Didn't take you long, did it, dear? That chimney's better than ever, if I do say so. Gainley was never one to turn his back on his accomplishments. His wife put a flowered arm around his neck and then said, What would we do without you, Mr. Fix-It? Then, doesn't it feel sort of dank in here, Gainley? Would it be impossible for us to have a small fire? Wiping flour off Truly's arm, he approved her suggestion. It's probably a good chance to check her out. The heat will hurry the cement, I'd bet. Gainley came back to find his father on his knees in front of the fireplace. Boys, we got draft enough now, look. Lighting another wooden match, he showed Manley how the flame was being sucked up the chimney. Gainley climbed up on his soapbox again. That bad cement seemed to be just an area where them rocks was missing. I checked the best I could as far up as the ladder reached, and all the cement was okay. I guess whoever found the bad cement did us a favor. Sounds good, Dad. That chimney's drawing some good. Good as ever. Your mother's got supper ready for us. Gainley got to his feet and made a move toward the kitchen, then turned abruptly back to the fireplace, saying, I was supposed to light a fire, but I clean forgot. With a grin at his son, You know, for a while there, I almost got to thinking that I'd invented draft, or, at the least, I discovered it. Boy, I was some proud. Truly ladled chowder out for the three of them, but before the bowls were placed on the table, they heard a commotion in the front hall. Somebody's coming, sounds like, announced Stanley. Three men entered the kitchen. Mr. Morgenthau quickly wound his arms around Truly. She greeted him. Welcome home, John. It sure does feel like I've come home. John unwrapped himself from Truly and said, Let me introduce you to my friends, Justice Neil Hawthorne Dow and Herbert Hannibal. Herbert is from the West Coast. He then introduced Gainley as his oldest and dearest friend, and then 
his son Manley. He just come home from the service yesterday, Finley informed them. Then John continued, I'm sure he figured out who this beautiful lady is. I've certainly talked about Truly often enough. I think of Truly as a daughter. We was just about to have some fish chowder, John. Would you fellas be interested? Truly was emptying the three bowls back in the pot, even as she spoke. That Gainley wanted his scalding hot was no secret. May we have it here in the kitchen, Truly? This seems so much cozier in here, and it is smoky out there. Of course you can, John. We'll just pull out the table. The Moore family knew the real reason John Morgenthau wanted to eat in the kitchen was that he had revered her and gainly since they had done a lot of their growing up in his summer home. It was the fact that he loved her as a daughter and he had had similar feelings for Gainley. It still made him a little sad when he thought of his own two sons who could have at least tried to win Truly's hand. To John Morgenthau, this girl would have been the ultimate catch. And try as he might, he couldn't help comparing this beautiful young mother with the society dolls his sons had married. He really did not know what his true feelings were for his own family. Truly had made cream of tartar biscuits, which were a big hit with the men from away, but were ignored by the Moore men. Truly couldn't resist. Gainley, you've got me wondering how come you went on and on, how well them biscuits went with chowder, yet you were eating nothing but pilot crackers. Some people just never seem to learn, honey bunch. Gainley was equal to the task. They headed home with Manley riding in the back, there being no way he could sit in front. These men were just too big. That chowder y'all sure was a hit, especially with them new fellas. You know, Gainley, there had to be close to three pounds of haddock in her, and I don't think there's enough left to physic a cat. Just before we left, the Supreme Court man asked if he could go hauling with us. You know what I think about that. Truly, rarely interfered, but said, He seemed very nice, don't you think? I told him we was leaving at four o'clock in the morning, and he said he'd be there. Probably won't. I can only hope not. Sperma scooted up the path to his home until he was out of sight from the road and sat on a grassy hummock. He heard the road truck stop down by the bottom of the path. He figured correctly that his father would be coming up shortly and that he should get a move on, but he didn't budge. Well, here's my oldest and most ambitious son. Elmer got uphill of his son and spoke even more spiteful words. Did you spade up the garden like I told you? Mama told me not to. Said all it does is muddy up the backyard and that nothing ever grows up here in the woods anyhow. Just because she owns it don't mean she's the boss. I'm still the one in charge. After a pause, he went on. You go to the fire? We come all the way over from the North Shore when the siren went off. Just as we got to Gertz, though, she gets a call that there weren't no fire. Wouldn't you know we had to go back to cutting them alders? Eloise Soames did own the only home that they had after their large house in Spruce Cove had burned flat. Not only did they lose the house, they lost the lobster boat, almost all the new dock, many lobster pots and buoys. 
Almost none of the tools and maintenance equipment in the small buildings was spared. Included in the loss, and probably most important, was Elmer's effort to try to come back. The house insurance had been allowed to lapse so he could buy an engine with an electric starter for his boat. In 1927, the Eloise and Admira was the only boat in Scuttle with an electric starter. The Palmer engine that he had replaced had sported a very large flywheel that should had to be swung over manually to start the engine. Sometimes lots of rollovers were needed to get the engine started. Elmer had frequently said that starting that engine had taken 10 years off his life. Little wonder he'd given up when he lost his boat and everything else. In his mind, he blamed the sea and sore fisheries of the state of Maine. Elmer sincerely felt that their dumbest law was most responsible for his loss. If they hadn't made him put his license number in every single trap, there'd have been no fire. To get the branding iron hot enough to get a number on it that they could read was almost impossible. He was nearly done when he thought he smelled something different in the fish house, but he saw nothing amiss after making his search. He had gotten seven brands out of the next-to-last hot iron and again headed back to the fish house. The smoke coming out the door scared him. He threw the brander on the bench and grabbed the bucket of salt water that was always there for an emergency. He then tried to get into the building, but the smoke and flames stopped him. In a moment of panic, he threw the water towards the stove. Well, that brought a small explosion, but no lessening in the flames. Soon he had cause to regret wasting that bucket of seawater. The paint in the main house was now starting to blister, and the nearest water was at dead low tide. Still, his only option was to run down to the sea to get a full bucket of water. With it slopping over, he had run back and tried to get between the burning building and his smoldering home. But the extreme heat had driven him back. He began to realize that this battle lost and that there wasn't a blessed thing he could do about it. So Elmer, feeling just plain heartsick, had gone and just sat on the lawn some distance from his blazing home. He could only pray the fire would burn itself out. Then he spotted a column of black smoke that had to be coming from the recently creosoted dock planks. This confirmed his fear that the only thing between the Soames family and destitution, his boat, that he had tied to the dock on the high tide, was doomed. They were now wiped out. Elmer Soames knew in his heart that all his hope for the future was now just a growing pile of ashes. He had been a high-line lobsterman, but now he was merely a broken, middle-aged man with a hopeless future. The piled-up losses affected this hell-for-bent former lobsterman to the point that his personality just withered away. But there had been no giving up for Eloise, however. From the moment she'd heard the terrible news as she was boarding the bus at Halftown, she'd been like a woman possessed. She had quickly thought things through and had gone straight to Lister's store where she bought a large quantity of soap. She then headed to the house in the woods that had been left to her years before by her Uncle Percy. Upon entering the empty house, she could see and smell the long-time festering results of an old man and his cats. The years the house had been empty since the old man died hadn't helped. Well, it sure, sure beats the hell out of nothing, 
she didn't approve of and had never used her husband's frequent statement before, but it now rang loud in her head. Father and son stopped before entering the house and removed their shoes. It was the long-standing family practice. Supper be ready in 25 minutes, boys. Eloise welcomed them home. Elma went to the cellar and spurred to her sister Elma's room, Elmira's room, finding it pretty much as he expected. Elmira was lying on her bed, and the baby, Marie, was fussing in her bassinet. Marie seems to be telling us something, Sperma muttered as he picked her up and carefully placed the now smiling infant on the foot of Elmira's bed on a spread-out towel. She wet? How'd you guess? Sperma, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have you. Probably be in a home for wayward mothers or even worse. Her voice trailed off. You got to get out of this house and start living again, Elmira. All you are doing now is lying around feeling sorry for yourself. Her younger brother didn't usually speak to her like this, but it did shock her off dead center where she had been for over a year. You may have something there, Sperma. Probably I should try to find out what happened to Wadsworth. It might be as simple as a lost address. Though in my hat, I believe he is no longer of this world. I should go to Cleveland to maybe find him. Oh, what happened to him? I don't know what I'd do for money, though. You need money. I got $36 you can have. His sister reached over and kissed him on the cheek. They heard a commotion and knew that their younger brothers had arrived on time, as ordered. Their exuberance today was over the top. On his way downstairs with Marie's bassinet, Sperma could hear his youngest brother's pleading voice. Can't we now, Ma? Can't we? Can ask your father, but I would think not. Eloise looked over at her oldest son, John, and told him to call his father for supper. Elmira came down nicely dressed. One time in the nearly six months she'd been there with a the baby, she had come to dinner in her nightgown and pretty house coat Wadsworth had given her. Eloise didn't approve and stated that she was not to come to supper half naked. Little wonder she scandalized the whole family by arriving with a baby, but no husband, Eloise declared. Everyone was embarrassed, and silence reigned for the rest of the meal. After fidgeting a while, John began to work on his father. Can we go to church tonight, Daddy? There's going to be some movies and everything. Elmer had heard that in some African movies, the ladies were quite naked, so he suggested... Maybe I should take you, boys. Hearing this, Eloise exploded. I guess not. Right after I get the supper dishes cleared up, they are having a bath and going to bed. The thought of her husband smelling so high to heaven of alcohol made a spectacle of himself at church was too simply too much for her. After supper, John and Paul went out in the backyard to play in the old punt that Sperma had salvaged and brought home for his brothers. Set that trap, Joe. Okay, Paul, throw the bowie. I already did, Joe. The mother interrupted their game, demanding of the boys, Why didn't you young scalawags eat your supper? She knew from experience how hungry they both always were at supper time. While John was still hanging, uh, shaping his answer, Paul came out with a different story that he was preparing. 
It was over to Pop Gowers, and he taught us how to shell muscles and put lead in our pencil. He sounded quite proud. His mother didn't. What is he talking about, John? What is putting lead in your pencil? John knew he had to come clean. I'm not so sure, Ma, but every time we ate a raw muscle, Pop would say, that'll put lead in your pencil. The boy looked bewildered. I guess I don't really know what it means. You know, I don't either, but I do know it does not sound good and nothing that man says is fit to listen to. Their mother thought for a moment, but then continued, what could you boys have been thinking? Eating food that Elroy Gower had himself handled. He didn't handle them when they was food, Ma, just when they was live mussels. Paul was a wealth of information. We even learned how to shell them. And he let us use his extra special shucking knife that can just about shell clams of mussels by itself. Their mother had heard enough. Into the house, you two. It's bath night, and you certainly need a scrubbing. Whose turn is it to go first? Eloise had filled the wash tub with warm water that had been heating on the kitchen stove. <coughs> Both boys said, Mine. John had last week, and he peed in the tub, honest, ma. Is that right, John? I was just kidding him because he wouldn't share his Hershey bar with me. You each had one, as I recall. Yeah, but I'm bigger, so I need more. John was serious. Into the tub, Paul, and I don't want to hear about peeing in the tub ever again. That is such nasty talk. Later, Elmira told her little brothers how she and Sperma snuck out when they were young and how their mother had never caught them. They didn't need much encouragement. She felt their excitement might make them careless and told them they had to go down the kitchen roof very quietly to reach the tree. Sperma went to the living room and tried to keep his mother out of the kitchen until the boys were gone. She was preparing to vacuum the living room rug with an Electrolux vacuum cleaner that he and Admira had sent her the past Christmas. Sperma was thinking that this would be perfect when Eloise stopped the vacuum and acted as if she might be headed for the kitchen. With this, Sperma leaped up saying, I'll do the rug for you, Mama. He grabbed the vacuum, but his mother pulled the hose back and commenced to vacuuming the threadbare carpet herself. The boys made hardly a sound when they were leaving. Sperma watched out for large, hairy spiders that he had never seen anywhere but here in the woodshed as he fetched the baby carriage out of the shed. He brought it down to the road and wiped it over with a spare diaper. He had just said to Elmira, them kids hadn't ought to be too far ahead of us when the two young commandos crawled out of the woods nearby. Seems they'd spotted their father on the hill and crawled a fairly long detour around him. Elmira walked about halfway to the Methodist church and turned around saying that she wanted to be home before sundown. Just leave the carriage in the path. I'll take care of it when I get home, offered Sperma. You have a good time, boys, and thanks, big guy. The church was crowded, but people squeezed over and made room for John and Paul. It was quite an occasion to have moving pitchers in Halftown, and the air was electric with excitement. Reverend Titherington introduced missionary Guy Smathers, and, after a few problems with the projector, they all settled down to see a talking movie. For a spell, the 
pictures and words were out of sync, but people mostly didn't seem to notice. After the lights came on, the missionary grabbed the pulpit and began telling how poor these natives were and how much they needed Jesus and how contributions would help spread the Christian word to those miserable souls. Before the minister could get him corralled, two of Guy's student trainees were out in the aisles passing collection plates to the confused congregation. Then the very upset Reverend Titherington finally got a chance to tell the other man that they'd advertised a free movie and it did not seem right to take up a collection. Well, the missionary said, it isn't as if we sold tickets. We are only taking donations from people that want to help the poor souls portrayed in the movie. When the plate appeared in front of Sperma, he explained that he hadn't watched the movie. He'd just come in to pick up his young brothers and take them home. Still, seemed that plate stayed in his face a long time. It was almost as if the fellow knew that Sperma had a $5 bill in his pocket. But Sperma made his escape, thankful to get out of the church with his money still intact. He was waiting outside for his brothers when a hand grabbed him by his rear end. Thinking it must be one of his buddies, he turned around to instead find Rain Gildard laughing. Nice femme butt, cousin. If anyone else had said that, even Sperma would have been somewhat shocked. From rain, it was as normal as breathing. You going to be around later, Sperma? She asked. Well, first, I got to escort my brothers home. Then I'll be around. Sperma was looking to the crowd for the boys. We have the Smythe's car, so we'll probably go looking for you guys. Oops. Here go my passengers. See you later, operator. Walking home with Sperma was about all the young boys could handle, running at times to keep up. Passing one of the far-apart streetlights, Paul started watching his shadow. It kept growing as he got further from the light. Did you fellas enjoy that movie? Sperma asked. You bet, answered Paul. Did you watch it? asked John. Sperma thought for a moment. I only saw the last couple of minutes. Sure is a pretty country. Me and John donated to the cause. I put in my cat's eye glassy, but I don't think it'll do much good. Why's that, Paul? Sperma expected a good answer, and he got it. Well, it'd be awful hard to play marbles with just one glassy. John put the brand new fish hook you gave him in the plate right alongside and what looked just like Pop Gower's special shuck-in knife. I bet he'd be some sad if he'd give that knife away. John finally got a word in. Wonder if they got clams and mussels over there, Sperma swallowed with a chuckle. Then he went straight to bed, turning down his mother's offer of apple pie, and even though he loved all her pies, especially Scuttlebutt, ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me.